welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Matthew Seligman, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Yeshiva University Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Personalized Choice of Private Law. So welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, the, uh, my pleasure. I really was gl- was pleased when you reached out to me, and I really enjoyed reading this fascinating paper on private law theory. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. <laughs> so I-, I wonder if we could start by kind of framing the nature of the problem that you're tackling, because it's a really big one and a really kind of profound theoretical one that I think a lot of listeners might not have thought about. So you talk about this kind of tension between default and mandatory rules. And I wonder if you could explain what that tension is and sort of how it crops up, not just in a contract context, but in other private law contexts as well. Sure. So the general problem that I'm addressing is what I think is one of the most profound moral and practical challenges in private law in the modern world. And that's that we frequently lack meaningful control in our interactions with powerful private parties like firms. Now, this problem I think people are familiar with when it comes to standard form adhesive contracts. So that can be profoundly disempowering when you interact with a firm uh, and you don't really have a choice about important aspects of your transaction. So uh, firms impose arbitration clauses, they impose, uh, impose class action waivers that can make it economically impossible for people to seek relief. They can impose data privacy regulations and so on. So now one of the important things is that I think that this problem extends beyond just contract law. Um, And the way that it does is that we interact with powerful parties out in the world all the time. And increasingly, especially in the Internet era, we do so even if we don't actually have a contract with them. Uh, So there are going to be uh, companies that can scour the Internet for data about you, or they may have a drone flying above you that will collect information about you. Um, Or you may walk past somebody who has a doorbell cam, and all of this data is going to be flying around about around you, and you don't have any control about how these firms are going to be able to treat you even though you don't have a contract. So I think that's a profound problem and one that the framework I present in this paper is designed to address. Well, maybe we can start by kind of tackling how this problem manifests itself in practice in a contract context. So maybe just kind of give people an example to make it more kind of tangible about, you know, sort of where this problem arises and talk a little bit about how contract law currently kind of conceptualizes the nature of the issue and tries to resolve the tension. So every day we are party to countless contracts um, just by using our phones or surfing the internet. And so, for example, think about the iTunes agreement. So when you uh, click I agree on the iTunes agreement, you are uh, allegedly consenting to a whole boatload of terms, pages upon pages that virtually nobody ever reads. Now, the way that modern contract law conceptualizes this is that uh, the two parties have agreed. Uh, to all of those terms simply because you manifested assent by clicking I agree. Now, the background of contract law is a fabric that's uh, combined of uh, two types of rules. 
One type of rule is a default rule. Another type of rule is a mandatory rule. Now, mandatory rules say that a particular contract term is just unenforceable, even if the parties have agreed to it. But that's not most of contract law. Most of contract law is a background of default rules that can be altered by the parties by agreement. Um, So, for example, uh, the UCC, which is a a statute adopted by every state that governs the sale of goods, sets a default rule about the place of delivery, which is going to be the seller's place of business. But that can be altered by the agreement of the parties, which is what Amazon does. Now, the problem with having a system of default rules is that these days – There isn't really agreement between the parties when we're talking about these standard form contracts between a powerful firm and an individual. You don't really have a choice. And so instead of representing an opportunity for people to freely determine the nature of their interactions with other parties, really what we're doing is the law has abdicated its role to powerful firms to dictate the terms of transactions on everybody else. So what used to maybe be a system that enabled freedom of contract really now just enables freedom for powerful parties to control economic transactions. Well, so one thing I thought was really interesting in your paper was how you observed that not only do most consumers not read the fine print in contracts, as it were, you know, the click wrap or browse wrap or whatever agreements, but that in many cases, they actually even have kind of fundamental misunderstandings of how contract law works and when and how contracts are are binding. And I, and I just wonder if you could reflect for a moment on that and why you think that's relevant to how we think about the nature of this problem. Well, I think it's a profound issue. So I've, uh, in some of my other scholarship, a paper that came out last year in the Maryland Law Review called The Error Theory of Contract, I presented some empirical data that shows that between a third and a half of non-lawyers in the United States falsely believe that specific performance, that is the promise that you made in the contract, that a court will order that as a remedy for breach, whereas we lawyers know that damages, money, is typically the remedy. And this is just one example of um, all sorts of uh, different aspects of contract law that people have false beliefs about. Now, the reason why this relates to the problem of boilerplate, that people don't read um, the fine print, is that if we say that the fine print's unenforceable, then what we do is we enforce the background legal rules. But if people are also ignorant of the background legal rules, then it's not clear that people are agreeing to that either. So we have a problem that seems to look intractable unless we come up with more creative solutions. Well, so if the problem here is that powerful parties are in effect determining what the terms of contracts are going to be to the kind of uniform detriment of consumers, why don't we just kind of legislatively create mandatory rules that are fairer or maybe even consumer friendly? I mean, why isn't that an easy solution? Well, so that's the standard reform proposal. And I think there's a lot to say in favor of that. But what that lacks is giving people a choice for themselves. Um, And I think that giving people a choice for themselves is a fundamental value in private law. And I think we can make this concrete. Uh, So think about your email platform. So I have Gmail. Um, Now, it's free in the sense that I don't pay a monthly fee for it. But Google gets quite a bit of data from me as a result. 
Now, imagine we passed a consumer-friendly, protective rule that said that no internet company could collect data like that. Well, then suddenly there's no more free Gmail. Now, some people out there are going to prefer to have that protective rule, but some people, including me, don't. And as a result, having a more consumer protective rule like that actually can impose uh, this higher cost, higher you know, higher protection option that many people wouldn't prefer. And so I think it's better instead of just making mandatory protective rules to give people a choice for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, so so what alternative kinds of ways of solving this problem have have people proposed? I mean, you talk about a few different potential approaches or potential ways of thinking about leveling the playing field, especially in a contract context. Um, what have other people said, and what do you think the weaknesses of those proposals might be? So two of the uh, more recent approaches are One, uh, there's been uh, this growth of a type of position uh, called personalized law. And the idea is that the legal rule for one person doesn't need to be the legal rule for everyone. Um, And we can vary the law between people. And so, for example, um, there are mandatory uh, disclosure rules in consumer law. So, um, for example, if you're taking out a certain loan or a credit card, the company has to tell you uh, certain information. And there's some empirical evidence to indicate that people need different amounts of information. Um, And the idea behind personalized law is let's tailor the law so it matches each individual person's needs or preferences. Now, the existing proposals uh, typically are uh, based on big data mining. The idea being that uh, we can use big data to predict which individuals will need more protection and which individuals will need less. And as a result of that, we can have the law tailored to itself. Now, what this does is it it solves part of the problem because, as I said before, you know, some people are going to prefer to have a more secure, uh, less data intrusive email program and pay for it, and some people aren't. So we can solve that tailoring problem, but there are two problems with it. One, people still don't have a choice in which legal rule applies to them. And two, there are, I think, serious normative concerns with giving the government the power to collect all of that data um, in order to apply different rules of law to people. So that's why I think that uh, the existing versions of personalized law um, aren't the best solution. Now, uh, there another proposal that you could uh, that you could advance and has been advanced is an active choice regime. So uh, just have every firm ask people, require them to ask, okay, do you want to pay more and uh, and have us not mine your data or pay less, get the service for free and we'll take your data? Or in the context of an arbitration clause, uh, which is now a ubiquitous term in consumer contract, just force the firm to ask people whether they want the term or not. Now, this does give people a choice, but the problem with it is that people will quickly become overwhelmed 
with that many, that quantity of decisions to make every day. So if you think about, you know, the data policies for every website you go to and every app you use, it's dozens a day, if not more. And to actually go through all of them and make a decision about what you want in each individual transaction, it's just overwhelming. People have lives to live and they don't want to spend all of their time making decisions about these various legal terms. So that's why I think my proposal is superior to both of those existing alternatives. Yeah. I mean, especially when it comes to the second one, I mean, it really struck me that I mean, it seems like when an element of an agreement is salient to consumers, they already do have a choice, right? Like when I go to rent a car, you know, they make me say what kind of car I want to rent, a big one, a small one, a fast one, a slow one, whatever. Like I actually personally don't really care that much, but a lot of people do, right? Apparently because they ask, but they don't ask me about very many anyway of the legal terms other than, you know, insurance, right? Which presumably is sufficiently salient that they ask consumers. But otherwise it seems like, you know, they're just not bothering to ask the question. And I can't help but wonder if it's just like, it doesn't mean enough for consumers to them to really price it in the first place. Yeah. I think that's a, a I think that's a, a real observation. I also think it depends on the context. And so the two examples that I talk about in the paper, what I call proofs of context of the idea that I'm the proposal that I have um, are arbitration and data privacy. And I think that those are importantly different contexts because, you know, people are becoming more aware of arbitration. There's been some really good public advocacy about this, um, especially in the employment context. Um, and in the Me Too era, people are becoming more aware of some of the pernicious effects of arbitration. But still, I think it's undeniable that most people don't know about it. They don't realize that they're party to uh, contracts that have arbitration clauses. My 1L contract students um, are shocked and appalled when they learn what's actually in all of the agreements that they've already signed. Now, as a result of that, you might think it's just not salient enough of a legal term to to warrant legal intervention. Now, I think for reasons that we can get into, I think that my framework actually can help raise the salience in ways that can enhance people's ability to make choices about this. Now, contrast arbitration with data privacy. I think that there's no question that people do know and do care about the way that different firms uh, use their data and sell their data and collect their data. But nonetheless, one of the amazing things is, even though there are privacy settings available on different apps and websites, it would just take so long and take so much effort to go in and make those decisions for every single firm that you interact with, that I think that's the problem. The problem is the burden associated with executing all of those choices and decisions. And as a result, people just don't do it, even though they do care about privacy. Mm. So the way to, to cut that Gordian knot where it looks like this problem is intractable, or if you give people choices, they have too many decisions, and then they just disengage. The way to solve that is to centralize the choice so people can do it once, and they can make their decision. So they have made a choice, but they don't have to do it dozens or hundreds of times a year in their life. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems like in a way, 
one of the tools that companies use to achieve the contractual outcomes that are most favorable to themselves is to sort of set the default choices in the direction that they want and rely on the fact that fewer no consumers will actually, you know, go to the trouble to opt out of those of those default choices and and you propose like an alternative way of of in of doing choice as it were right so maybe you could talk a little bit kind of in a kind of broader kind of theoretical perspective Mm -hmm. about about sort of how you see the the a, a more effective way of implementing choice uh from a kind of consumer oriented perspective so this is my proposal. This is uh, what I hope is my big idea for this paper. So the framework that I propose is called Personalized Choice of Private Law. And what it does is it empowers people to choose from a government-authored, centralized catalog of options, the private law rule that will apply to them. So, for example, enrolling in a do-not-arbitrate list would make arbitration clauses unenforceable against you across all of your transactions with all firms. Or enrolling in a digital data privacy registry would allow you to control how firms may lawfully collect, use, and sell data about you. Now, the theoretical advantage of this is that it centralizes the choice, so you have to execute it only once and you choose a rule of law for yourself. Instead of choosing a contract term in a particular transaction, you choose a rule of law that then applies across all of your interactions, contractual and otherwise, with firms. And by centralizing the choice, it eliminates the transaction costs associated with having to make those choices dozens or hundreds of times a year. In other words, uh, it it addresses the problems associated with um, imperfect and busy people in a modern economy with an overload of transactions where people just don't have the bandwidth and shouldn't be expected to have the bandwidth to have to make all of that time to execute those choices in every single transaction. And I think that makes a difference for people's meaningful choices, because even if you have the formal ability, the formal right to make a choice, as you do right now with the privacy policies on all 1,500 websites you visit in a given year, the fact that it's just practically unrealistic for us to make those decisions under the current setup, it just means that we don't really have the kind of freedom that uh, the, the fiction of private law, as we see now, it pretends that we do have a freedom. Yeah, and in a way, it's like I mean, it's on one level, it sounds really radical, but then on another level, it's like it's kind of no different than than companies including choice of law provisions in their own contracts, right? I mean, it's it's you know from a kind of conceptual perspective, the the. The practical outcome is not really any different than saying, you know, under all contracts that I that I engage in, I'm going to be governed by Delaware law, for example. I think that's absolutely right. Um, now, I think that there's also there is precedent, um, historical precedent for allowing people to choose which legal rule applies to them. Um, and so one obvious one is the do not call list. 
um, which was created in the, the 1990s. You could sign up for a list um, with the FTC that would make it unlawful for telemarketers to make unsolicited sales calls to your telephone number. Now, I'll point out, by the way, that that's without a contract. So that was an application of this general framework in the context of something like a tort law, not a contract. But even beyond that one example, all the time we allow people to, for example, select which type of uh, legal organization they're going to utilize for their business. Are they going to be a corporation? Are they going to be a partnership? Are they going to be an LLC? So it's actually quite typical and unremarkable to empower private parties to select a different set of legal rules to govern their interactions with other legal parties. And we think that that's absolutely ordinary in the context of business organizations. And I think we should allow individuals to do the same thing. Well, so how would this work, for example, in the contract, in the context of arbitration, which you talk quite a bit about in the paper, I think wisely, because it's very kind of much in the air today. I mean, like, would I be able or would I would I just opt in or out of arbitration writ large? Could I kind of pick and choose which contracts I was okay with arbitration, which contracts I wasn't? Could I opt into the no arbitration system and then like change my mind and leave later? And like, what would the consequences of that be? Like sort of, how would you operationalize something like well, this? Well, so I think there are some really important design choices that you bring up that lawmakers are going to have to face in implementing this framework. So one design choice is uh, what type of legal rule um, are we allowing people to select. So one type of legal rule that we could have them select is just a default rule that by default, um, arbitration clauses aren't enforceable against you, but that could be overridden by agreement in the contract. I don't think that's going to work just because the the purpose, the function of this uh, framework would be undermined if firms could evade it just by sticking something in the fine print. So I don't think a regular default work rule is going to work. So the natural alternative is a mandatory rule. So if you sign up for the uh, do not arbitrate list, uh, arbitration clauses are just going to be unenforceable against you across all of your transactions. Now, for arbitration, I think that's the way to go. And the reason is because it's unlikely that people have heterogeneous preferences about arbitration between firms. What I mean is, if you're okay with arbitration against Amazon, but not, it's you're probably going to be okay uh, with arbitration against other firms as well. But I think there are going to be some contexts where people might have heterogeneous preferences, and I think data privacy is one of them. So, for example, I may be fine sharing information with Apple or Google, but Facebook, not so much. Um, so this gets to your question about could you tailor um, the application of your legal rule to different firms and different contracts? So I think that there's a hybrid approach that when people are likely to have these heterogeneous preferences, we can implement something that allows them to tailor their legal rule on a firm-by-firm -firm basis. And so this draws on the work of Ian Ayers. Um, he had an article some years ago about regulating opt-out. And the idea is that we can create a system where there's a default rule, but in order to override the default rule, you have to have certain robust procedures that guarantee that people are making a real choice. And that could, for example, be, uh, so let's say that you set your 
Um, you set your digital data privacy settings so no company can collect real-time geolocated data about you. Well, some companies are going to need that in order to provide a service for you. So, for example, Uber needs that data. So uh, implementing this hybrid approach, we could say, okay, Uber, you can ask people to override their data privacy rules, but you have to ask them in a sufficiently robust way with a pop-up window that makes simple and salient information about what the consequences of the choice are going to be. So this hybrid approach can allow us to get the best of both worlds, where we can centralize the choice so people don't have to be burdened with so many decisions, but they also have the opportunity to tailor their legal rule to a particular firm or transaction when it's needed. Mm -hmm. Well, so as I understood it, as well, there's sort of a pricing element that would work in here as well in the sense that, you know, to the extent that companies felt or had reason to believe that one rule would be economically beneficial to them as opposed to another, that they could offer like price differentials and effectively have consumers sort of opt in or opt out based on what the cost would be. Am I understanding the proposal correctly there? Yeah, and I think that this uh, this is perhaps the most controversial uh, part of my proposal. So I call this price personalization. And the idea is, uh, should we allow firms to offer different prices to people based on which legal rule they chose? And so, for example, if a firm has uh, has access to the database and can find out whether you have enrolled in the do not arbitrate list, can they charge you more prices as a result of that? And I think for practical reasons, the answer has to be yes. And here's why. So imagine we, uh, we mandated price uniformity. Then people could uh, either have a higher quality legal rule or a lower quality legal rule, or one that's more protective to them or less protective, and they'd pay the same price. Well, if you have a choice between something better or something worse for the thing you're going to choose, something better because uh, everybody loves free upgrades. Um, so as a result of that, what will happen is there's going to be a kind of death spiral where everybody's going to opt into the better legal rule because they pay the same price either way. And as a result, we're just going to get a situation where you know everybody opts for the uh, better legal rule, which if it's more costly for the firm, is going to just have the cost for everybody rise up to what it would be if we just mandated the better legal rule. And to the extent that there are people who don't make that decision, it's probably going to be people who are less legally sophisticated, less informed. And it's particularly hard to justify charging that group of people uh, the same amount of money for less legal protection. So I think for that practical reason, uh, we really do have to allow price personalization. But that has, you know, that raises some, I think, serious questions about what I, I have to be candid about what I'm proposing, which is a legal framework where people um, will end up paying different prices to have different legal rules. And if people are willing to pay more, they will get better legal protection. And if they are willing to pay less, they will get less legal protection. 
Mm. Well, so this raises something that I was thinking about when I was reading your paper, which is that, like, for example, you talk about uh, arbitration clauses in the context of cell phone contracts, right? And the cell phone, the cell phone business, like, that's an area where there's a fair amount of competition, right? There's a bunch of different cell phone providers and a bunch of different choices you can have about, like, sort of what plan you want, et cetera, et cetera. As far as I know, like, none of those companies are like price differentiating on the basis of arbitration, right? So, I mean, does that suggest that like consumers just don't actually care that much about arbitration because like, you know, in theory, companies could compete over whether or not they have mandatory arbitration clauses or does it reflect, you think, something more about like information costs, like consumers don't know how to price it. And so it, you know, there's like, uh, reasons that are external to what they would actually care about that are affecting the fact that this isn't an option that isn't already being offered. I I think it's because people are unaware that it's in the contract. And if they were aware, they might care. Um, so uh, just something that's I found fascinating, uh, a colleague of mine a couple of years ago pointed out that of the 20 most popular credit cards in the United States, 17 of them actually allow you to opt out of arbitration if you write a letter to a particular P.O. box within 14 days of signing up, et cetera, et cetera. But the number of people who actually do this is uh, presumably almost no one. And what I think that shows is that, well, even I'm a lawyer, I care about arbitration and I have adopted out of those uh, arbitration clauses. And it's because I didn't even know I had the option to do so, and it just takes too much time. So what we can do instead is we can change the system where the existence of the do not arbitrate list will itself inform people about the consequences of arbitration. And I think that's particularly true if we design the system so uh, the default rule is that you're on the list. So it's an opt-out system rather than an opt-in system. The reason why I think an opt-out system will be better is because then firms will have an incentive to tell you that you're on the do not arbitrate list and that you can save a certain amount of money if you delist yourself. And then people will go to the FTC website and then they'll learn about, okay, so this is what arbitration is and they can make a decision. So this is called an information forcing default rule. And that comes from the contract theory literature. And the idea is by setting the default rule to what the firms don't prefer, you give them an incentive to provide information to their customers. And I think by doing that, we can leverage the private market to, to inform people of the existence of arbitration, the fact that they're on this list, and then they can make a decision about whether it's worth it to them or not to stay on the list. Mm. Well, so in closing, Matthew, I mean, I think this is, a, I found this paper a really kind of clever and thought-provoking way of rethinking a theoretical problem in contract law and private law theory more more generally. But I, I can't help but wonder whether as a practical matter, you know, this is a problem or like a solution in search of a problem, right? In the sense of like, is this something that in practice consumers want to be able to price for and a set of choices that they want to be able to make? 
Or is it something that the reason it isn't already happening is because consumers don't actually care about it? And I guess what I really like about the proposal is that like, we can't really know until we try. (laughs) It seems like, you know, it's like, it's hard to say until we put it into practice. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of wonder what you think about that and why. So I think that this framework allowing people to choose their own rule of law I don't think that we should implement it for every single legal issue. Um, I think we should limit it to the ones that people are ultimately going to care about most and the things, the legal issues that we think are most important. Uh, And that's why I chose arbitration and data privacy as the two examples that I talk about in the paper. I think there are other plausible contexts where it can be applied as well. But I think in those two contexts and the other ones where I think that this is a a normatively attractive framework, I do think that there's a real problem because I do think that if people understand uh, what they're giving away in the world as we have it right now, the fact that they can't go to court, they can't join a class action if they're wronged by a firm, the fact that, uh, that internet companies have such a shockingly vast amount of information that we give away every day. And I do think people care about that. And I think that if we give people the opportunity to make decisions about that for themselves and we make it practically achievable for them to do that, as opposed to having these Byzantine systems that we have right now where people just throw up their arms, and I think justifiably so, if we give people a real and meaningful choice that it isn't going to take them three days to figure out what it is they have to do in order to make their uh, decisions for each interaction with a firm, then I think that that's something that's going to be valuable to a lot of people. And for that reason, I think that we should really pursue it. Mm. Well, so I wondered, just to follow up really quickly, I mean, whether there isn't a sort of certain social policy element to it as well. I mean, not only giving consumers choices about things maybe they didn't fully realize they wanted to be choosing about, but also Mm -hmm. maybe kind of from a sort of policy perspective, communicating to consumers when they ought to be thinking about certain kinds of choices and thinking about them more seriously. I think that's a great point because, you know, there's so many things in the world that we could devote our attention to that signals um, from policymakers that, hey, this is something that you should think about. Um, And this is something that's, you know, you may not realize it right now, but this is something that could have consequences for you. Those sorts of signals can be enormously valuable to people in how to devote their limited attention and time uh, to the issues that ultimately will have consequences for them. Awesome. Well, Matt, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the program. I really enjoyed reading your paper and and talking to you about it. Well, thank you for having me. my royalty check to come and it still hasn't come yet it's about a year overdue 
I guess it's coming from the big royalty check in the sky. I waited and the mailman never dropped it in my letterbox. It's a big world to check in the sky Ooh, baby But you can Beat the tax man And me all at once 